Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss the global experience with what's called universal basic income, an idea that has increasingly taken hold in the United States as well. In order to explore that issue, we're fortunate to have with us today Carl Wiederquist, uh, a professor of philosophy at Georgetown University, Qatar, uh, that is in the Middle East, and a leader of the worldwide basic income movement. He has published dozens of articles and several books on the topic, including a critical discussion of basic income experiments. He co-founded the U.S. Basic Income Guarantee Network uh, in 1999, Basic Income Studies, the first academic journal dedicated to basic income in 2006, and Basic Income News, which is the first news website dedicated to basic income, and that was founded in 2012. He served as co-chair of the Basic Income Earth Network uh, from 2010 to 2017 and as vice chair 2017-2018. He has a PhD in economics from the CUNY Graduate Center and a PhD in political theory from Oxford. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, Carl. Thank you. Okay. Great to have you. Thanks very much. So... Universal basic income or guaranteed minimum income, or it has a variety of names, but these schemes seem to come in a great variety of flavors and, and you know, with different kind of parameters. Um, perhaps you could just start by explaining a little bit about exactly what UBI is. Sure. It's, it's uh, part of, a, of uh, at least a, a family of, uh, ideas on the idea that there ought to be a floor under everyone's income that's that's not zero that uh, you can have an economy where income doesn't start at zero we don't need to put people under constant threat of being homeless and economically destitute and out on the street if they don't keep money coming in it's always a little amount coming in guaranteed now there's several ways to maintain a floor like the UBI model, true UBI model, maintains that floor by having a universal, unconditional cash grant given to all citizens, regardless of whether they work or not, regardless of whether they intend to work, regardless of whether they're disabled or not, regardless of how much money they make, if they do have private income from work or investments or anything else, everybody gets the check. That is the idea of universal basic income. Now, it is its closest cousin in doing that is the negative income tax, which is the idea of saying we're going to give the money only to the people who need it. We're going to make sure there's an income floor, but if your private income is higher than that, we're going to we're going to uh, give you less. We're, we're going to phase it out as it as your income rises, so that you don't have you don't have everybody uh, stuck where where they make some more money and we just take it away by low by by out of we just take it out of your negative income tax. So we're going to phase it out as it gets higher, but we 
we give the money only if your income is below that point. Those are the two main models, the negative income tax, the NIT, or the universal basic income, UBI. The reason that UBI is the model today is because universal benefits tend to be better for the least advantage than anything else. That actually helps you, uh, well, it helps you, the very disadvantaged person, it helps you more if we're giving this money to Bill Gates and Elon Musk and you giving them the same amount. It helps you more. We can always raise their taxes, so they're not going to end up benefiting directly from the UBI because their taxes go up more than they get in this little check every month. Um, but it helps you because you don't have to prove you're not a billionaire. And it's the, the, the lower your income is, the more stress you're under and the harder it is to prove that your income qualifies. Um, and also it, um, it's good for you because when people's income gets into this range, it's usually because of sudden stress. Um, and often dealing with trying to tell the right authority that I'm eligible is a bad thing for you to have to do when you suddenly need your universal basic income. So let's say um, you're, uh, you're a wife with uh, three kids and your husband makes $200,000 a year. You specialize in taking care of those kids and you find out that your husband's been abusing the children. So you run for your life and you go to a homeless shelter and you have no money. Uh, and you call up the in negative income tax authorities and say, hey, I, I need a negative income tax. And they say, well, it says here that you live at this address and that you're part of, you, you file your taxes as a household and you make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. We don't give anything to people with that. And uh, so you have to say, no, no, I left my husband and I'm currently living at this homeless shelter. So I need money right now because I don't have access to it. That's his money. I don't have any access to it. And uh, and that's an awful difficult. Then, then they're going to say, OK, well, prove it. Prove that you left this guy and you're living in a homeless shelter. Is that really what we want to make women fleeing from their husbands do to protect their children? Whereas a woman is a primary caretaker of kids like that under UBI. Those kids are going there. Those that money's going to go directly to her, directly to her account. He can't touch it. And that money is already there already there waiting for them. So, so, so I know we're going to talk about, we're going to, yeah, I know we're going to talk about experiments because you've written a book about experiments, but yeah. it seems to me that the experiments sure. I've heard about uh, aren't of this nature. They're, they're about, you know, giving maybe a thousand dollars a month to the poor people of a certain town or something like that. I mean, how many experiments mm -hmm. have there been? Yeah along the lines of the real UBI that you've just described, or, or have there been any anywhere in the world? Well, the real, uh, well, the real UBI is really impossible to test on a small scale uh, because uh, you, 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 you can give a UBI to a small town, um, but, and you can give you know, the same grant to everybody in town, but you can't raise their taxes. Uh, and, if unless the town is made up only of poor people and is not representative of the country as a whole, then these uh, then you're what you're then you're really exaggerating what people are going to end up with. You're t you're testing 
the UBI they get, but not the taxes they get to keep from that UBI from causing rampant inflation. So the taxes that they pay. So you're, you're testing people getting uh, the wealthy people actually being net beneficiaries rather than uh, net contributors to the program. And you're testing then on that little town an influx of cash. Um, so, yeah, UBI can't be tested. Negative income tax is the closest uh, really testable approximation of UBI. And that's why. That's why most experiments have focused on negative income taxes as, as an approximation of UBI. Um, or they'll give a UBI only to people that are likely to be net recipients of the full grant on net or people who uh, are likely to be really close to that. Um, so it is, it is a very difficult thing to experiment with. And when, you, when it comes to experimenting with UBI, it's always just a matter of... Uh, it's a matter of, well, how close can we approximate it? Like, wow, that's pretty far. And then how much of effects can we look at? Well, those effects, we're going to see some of the effects and not others. So some people, I think, particularly on the left, are have been opposed to UBI on the grounds that they think it's going to undermine other kinds of transfer and support programs. And, I mean, one of the rationales that you've just given for UBI is basically about the administrative convenience of it, right? There's no means testing. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets it irrespective of their income. And, you know, you get around the question of, you know, is this person in the situation for which X, Y, or Z program is designed, you know, to help? Um, I mean, how would you respond to that, to the kind of left uh, critique of, of the kind that they think it's going to, you know, undermine uh, income support programs of other kinds and that sort of thing? Well, I think what we need most is to stop judging the poor and start saying that there is no one who is unworthy of having their basic needs met, enough for food, for shelter, clothing, some basic transportation, medical care, and a few other things, a cushion on top of that. There's nobody that's unworthy in that. And we have a very cruel economic system that is based on a lot of cruel judgments about uh, what you quali who qualifies and who doesn't. And a lot of people fill, fill, fall through the cracks and we have homeless people and we have other people who are getting support and are still way in poverty. We have other people who are working and living in poverty and not eligible for much support. Um, and then, uh, and so basic income is extremely important in and of itself, but it also is not meant to, it doesn't necessarily uh, have to conflict with a lot of the existing welfare state. Um, if you are, if you're receiving food stamps, it's, and you're receiving $400 a month in food stamps and, and your, your family could get a $2,000 a month on basic income, uh, basic income in real cash is much better. Maybe you'd be willing to give that up for basic income. But if you're disabled, you might need more than someone gets with basic income and basic income shouldn't play, replace all disability benefits nor all social security benefits because those are people with special needs on top of these basic needs. But everyone has basic needs, and universal basic income is designed to meet those basic needs without judgment. Many of our welfare systems that we have today are based on preserving those judgments. We think, well, if we just help people, if we just help people, 
um, who are prove they need it, then uh, everybody will want to help. But actually, the opponents of the of people who say that the poor are unworthy basically think anybody who is unworthy is poor, uh, who is poor is necessarily unworthy because they think there's some fairness or justice or there's a job in the economic system that there's a job out there for everyone and that's and that all jobs are good jobs and all of those things are false. So we need to challenge these things. We need to challenge these things. Um, and so basic income, I think, is really one of the most important things we need to do today. It is not a threat to the welfare system as we have it, but it is a way to make it actually work and challenging the narratives that have been used to undermine the welfare system for the last 50 years. So another uh, objection, uh, and this is perhaps more from the right side of the political spectrum, but another objection is simply to the cost. I mean, people, you know, take whatever it is, uh, $1,000 a month, uh, multiply it by the uh, American population and come up with very, very large numbers. And so people like Lawrence Summers, for example, I think kind of dismiss UBI more or less out of hand for you know, on the grounds that it would just cost too much, that it would bankrupt the U.S. economy, et cetera. So how would you respond to that? Well, that is just utter nonsense uh, uh, because those numbers, you know, when you take the, the size of the grant, multiply it by population, you do not get a meaningful cost figure in any shape of the term. That's the gross cost of UBI and forgets the fact that UBI is, is a system where people are paying taxes and receiving the grant at the same time. And, and I've estimated that for every dollar that's actually, that's, actually a, that's actually a net benefit to someone, is that whereas actually someone is getting a dollar and not paying a dollar in taxes right back for, for that dollar that they got in UBI, there are six dollars where people are paying it right themselves. So it's like uh, imagine paying one dollar to the needy, and then you know government taxes you. So here's one dollar, going to give that to somebody who's needy. Okay, here's now take six dollars out of your wallet and put those six dollars back in your wallet. That second part does not cost you anything. It does not cost you anything to pay yourself. So imagine then you're when you get your pay sub after your direct deposit, it's going to say taxes, $10,000. Well, if it's a yearly pay stub, you know, uh, yearly pay summary, taxes, $10,000, UBI, $10,000. They cancel each other out. What matters is the amount more than that, that the net recipients are paying. And that is being then redistributed to the net beneficiaries. That is the real cost of UBI. It's about the sixth the size of the cost of the gross cost. I've estimated at 2.95% of GDP for the official, uh, a UBI set at about the official poverty level. Um, and that's clearly affordable. It's very small compared to what we're paying now. It would be still less than what we were spending on welfare programs per capita in the 1960s. Um, less than we spend on many other projects that are far less worthy, like dropping billions of dollars of bomb, worth of bombs on Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, so, uh, so the cost issue is really, it's really based on a fallacy. 
Thanks. Uh, that's very helpful. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about, you know, how this is, how this idea is faring politically in, you know, Europe or, I mean, we know about some of the experiments in the United States and you certainly talk about those, but uh, I wonder, you know, how would you assess the political viability of this idea in any parts of the world you'd like to talk about? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, yeah, it's the growth in UBI over the pa- over, in support for UBI over the past 10 years. International has been phenomenal, really incredible and in starting in one place, moving to another and, and uh, really becoming a true worldwide wave of support for the first time. We had uh, a substantial wave of support in the United States in the 1960s and 70s, which bled over a little bit into Canada and Britain, but didn't truly become worldwide. And before that, there was some talk about it in the early 20th century, and you could call that maybe a, uh, the first ripple of support for basic income in the early 20th century. But what's going on now is much bigger and much stronger than ever, ha- ever has before. Activists are getting behind it. And I think because partly because we've, we've tried this judgment thing. We've tried, okay, the last 150 years since the Bismarck created the modern welfare state in the 1880s. We've tried, we've tried, we're going to go with this whole harsh judgment thing on the poor. And then maybe if we judge them really harshly, then we'll have really good support of all the people who pass the judgments. And it's never been true. Uh, we, we judge the poor really harshly. Then we exclude a bunch of people who really ought to be included. And then we give really cheap benefits to the people who pass our judgments, and then we continually treat them like criminals over and over again, judging them and judging them and judging again, no matter how many times they pass the test, and people around the world are getting sick of this and want to challenge that model and that veteran. And it began, it's hard to say where it began, because people have been arguing and fighting about this for decades, but where I see it really, really increasing was in 2006, when the, the Namibian arch, the Archbishop of the Namibian Lutheran Church got up on the podium at a basic income conferences and conference said, words, 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 we need action. A lot of people say that, but I don't do anything. He did something. He had already begun raising money to hold a basic income pilot project in Namibia. That took place from about uh, 2008 to 2010. They got, they got, Lots of good information and good anecdotes and stories about how this helped people. It sparked media attention, which sparked another experiment in India, which got more media attention. And following on that, you had at about the same time the Great Recession and uh, the financial crisis and people out on the streets for things like the 99% movement, the Occupy movement, the Arab Spring. And you got activists getting onto this idea. So we got... Uh, petition drives and citizens' initiatives for uh, for votes on this, and got more and more active uh, active uh, activist participation in the UBI movement. And this has been spreading spreading around the world. And this spreads back to the United States um, when Andrew Yang runs a presidential campaign based on this, and and, and hugely increases the idea and just the popularity of the idea. And just at the time that Andrew Yang suspends his campaign, the COVID epidemic hits and we realize, wow, basic income 
is perfect at a time like this because it is a bonus for those people who are working, uh, who are staying in those essential jobs where we're, we're saying, please don't stop. And we can structure, structure it so it is a bonus that so they're not net contributors. And it is also it is also compensation for all those others who are playing. Please stay home because your job is not essential. Basic income can do both of those things in one program, and it could have prevented so much of the economic meltdown that we had along with the start of the COVID epidemic. And we're getting versions of it with the with uh, the extra child, uh, the extraordinary child tax credit, or the extra child tax credit, or whatever they're calling it, and the COVID stimulus payments, which are close to basic income. So this is so this popularity is growing, and the faults of the existing welfare system that it is never delivered and it's never proven. Once you prove them worthy, then then the welfare benefits will be safe. It's never proven true. Again, uh, non-universal benefits are always easily vilifiable no matter how many hoops you make those recipients jump through. And so this is, it's growing. And I think there's good reason to believe it can keep growing because the frustration with the existing welfare system is not going anywhere. Interesting. Thank you. Um, so in addition to being an economist, you're a political theorist and, you know, you describe the uh, economy that we have now as uh, you know, cruel and punitive and judgmental. Um, and I guess I'm wondering what's the sort of political theory behind uh, basic income. And you know, I guess uh, I think I think of Marx, and um, you know, you could say really existing communism gave a lot of that sort of thing a bad name, but that that. Uh, Marx's image was that capitalism was a wealth generating uh, economic system uh, that was, however, you know, distributed uh, wealth and income in, very unequally. Um, and that UBI is a kind of an attempt to achieve the sort of realm of freedom that he, uh, I think, really basically envisioned uh, after, you know, capitalism had created the means of living in a kind of post scarcity society. Um, does that sound like what UBI is about to you, or, or have I got that wrong? Well, Marx was very good at recognizing problems of capitalism. He was talking about the alienating nature of consumer capitalism 150 years ago, or, or more, 170 years ago, uh, 180 years ago, maybe at his very start. And he um, and it took decades for for a, a lot of people to catch up with that in in the in uh, in uh, non-communist literature. And he was very good at saying when he said recognizing the problem that working people have under capitalism that they have nothing to sell but their labor, which by which I take to mean that. They have nothing other to do to keep themselves alive but to sell their labor. Um, there's no need for humans and beings, human beings to buy or sell anything if they can. For thousands and thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, people were able to live as farmers, as hunters, as gatherers, as, as, as fishers without having to sell anything. 
and they were their own boss. And then we created a system where we're going to buy and sell. Well, that's okay. But what we did was the way we created a system where you could buy and sell was one group will own, another group will have nothing, and will have no choice but to sell their labor to the ownership class. And Marx was great about recognizing this problem. A solution, though, I don't think was so good. You know, if we just have worker ownership of the means of production, then all of that's going to work itself out. We'll be share. We'll be good to each other. We don't even have to worry. Uh, politics is going to lose its political character. Government will lose its political character after this point. Well, that sure didn't happen after the communist revolution. Politics really kept its political character. Um, seizing the means of production was not enough to get those benefits back to the people. And that's why Kachik Kipping, the head of the left party in Germany, said the old left wanted control over the means of production. It wanted workers to control, ordinary people to control the means of production. The new left wants people to control their own lives. And that's what basic income does. That control of one vote over the means of production or uh, over a socialist control of the means of production does not give you as individual power. Basic income is, a, is the only system that really concedes individual power to the least well-off by freeing them to withhold their labor, not just during a strike, during a strike, but also as long as they want, whenever they want, it reverses the thing. It reverses the question of whether the entire country gets to judge whether poor people are worthy of eating, but poor people eat and they judge where those jobs are worthy of taking. And that gives employers an incentive to go much better jobs, to much better wages, much better working conditions, and to pass on a share of the growth, a share of the benefits of the growth, which working people in the United States have not shared at, not shared in, in the last 40 or 50 years when the size of our economy has doubled. And almost all the benefits of that doubling have gone to the wealthy few. So basic income is much more empowering to and much more and much more, much more empowering to the least well off. And I think much better place to solve the problem, to Marx pointed out, than his own solution. So, you know, where do you think, I mean, back to this issue of political support, I mean, where do you think we might look in the next you know, a few years to see something like this actually happening. Is that, you know, on the horizon? That's one of the exciting things about it. It is, it is so incredibly unpredictable that it could come from anywhere. Basic income activism has, has, uh, has appeared here and there and everywhere, over, over where around the world, big movement for it in Namibia. There's, there, uh, Ten years ago, there was nothing going on in India, nothing to be said about what was happening in, in the basic income movement in India. Hardly anybody heard about it or was talking about it. They held these pilot projects, and ever since the uh, the, the uh, growth of it, the growth of the idea has been incredible. Um, the uh, the semi autonomous region of Sikkim uh, came very close to introducing a basic income. If, if a certain party had gotten more votes, they might have. Finland has been talking about it quite a bit. It's Spain and Portugal have been talking about it. Um, 
And it's even with someone like Yang in the United States, suddenly it's on the agenda in the United States. So it's really unpredictable around the world where this is going to, going to spring up. But the activism is, it keeps a pace and is keeping this idea alive and growing. And just out of curiosity, I mean, I've done a little writing about the idea of reparations for historical injustices and hence have been to Namibia. Um, I mean, aside from the Lutheran bishop, I mean, how is it that the universal basic income uh, issue or movement has taken off there? Oh, well, um, it has the 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 um, a coalition that heavily involves uh, the the Lutheran Church has been instrumental in that. But it is a grassroots movement that um, that uh, um uh, goes all the way up and all the way down in the system. Bishop Kamita is no longer a bishop. He's now been appointed uh, minister of uh, poverty alleviation in Namibia. So he's keeping alive from the inside. But when I was there uh, about five years ago, uh, I spoke not only to the prime minister who was running for president at the time and is now president. I spoke not only to a, uh, a ba- at a big event that he organized, but at a little grassroots event that people had organized on the edge of a shanty town. I spoke in a little, uh, I don't know, know if it's a school room or union hall or something. I spoke at a little place to a couple hundred people who, who listened to me talk for an hour in my heavily North American accented English, where they speak English down there with, uh, with their, their own accent. Uh, and so here's this foreigner speaking with his accent that makes it hard to understand. They listened to me for an hour and discussed it for another hour, an entire hour. It's a group of over 100 people. And uh, still there was a line of questions when the organizers finally had to say we're out of time. So this is something that people, um, that people at, the, uh, at the lowest end in Namibia are very interested in. And I, I, I tell you, I... Uh, the same is true in Brazil. I spoke about this in, in, at a favela, well, at, in a, a neighborhood of favelas in Brazil at a union hall. And uh, I think I got the biggest, I was being translated, uh, and I think I got the biggest round of applause I've ever had in my life at that meeting. So it's not just, as I had thought, really, a kind of movement of the wealthy parts of the world. India, I mean, it's kind of extraordinary. Yeah, no, but, but. We, we, I shouldn't leave out the movement in the wealthy parts of the world or by the relatively well. There's a, a movement, especially in Europe, of people who imagine that, who want to get off of the capitalist treadmill of school, debt, work, uh, consume, work, consume, work, consume, retire, die. Uh, they want to get out of that and with promoting programs on the idea, what would you do if your income was taken care of? If you actually had the time to get out there and do things other than follow this treadmill. That has been also a driver of the movement and, and shouldn't be forgotten. But the concern, but I've, you know, I've talked, I've talked to these people and I don't, I, I've not met a one of them who's politically unaware that this isn't just for tech geeks who want to just try stuff out and sit by their computer and try to write some new software rather than not. Uh, rather than uh, without the pressure of having to get a job right out of college. It's not just, they're not, that's not just what they're thinking about. They're not just thinking about themselves. They're also thinking about the impact of this on the least advantaged people in their countries. And 
we, you know, we forget, you know, we, they might have a smaller, they might have a smaller people in poverty in Europe, but uh, the people who are struggling in Europe are also struggling significantly. And it's gotten worse over the last 40 years. Right. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned tech geeks. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, in many ways, the support in Silicon Valley for these kinds of ideas um, has been driven by, you know, a kind of awareness that, as one guy put it, one billionaire, if I recall correctly, uh, put it that, you know, the people were going to be coming with pitchforks. I mean, their image is that uh, yeah, yeah. everybody's going to lose their jobs because of automation and technological development uh, and that they're going to be coming after the people who created that technology. Um, I mean, I think that's in the United States, that's some significant part of the support for it. Uh, and obviously, if it's going to go anywhere, it's going to have to go beyond the, the ranks of tech geeks and, and Silicon Valley moguls uh, who are just worried in a way about their own skins. Uh, mm-hmm. But one can imagine, given, I mean, there's been, you know, a, a certain amount of populist uh sort of support for the right uh, that's a reaction to some of these developments. Uh, but my, one might argue this is a more kind of humane way to address the sorts of challenges that new technologies and automation are going to uh, are going to generate for us. What would you say about that? Um, well, yeah, it, it is it is a reaction to what technology is generating for us. But there's, there's automation argument. I think people often take it in the wrong way, is, is that they talk about the, they, they talk too much about the future. And the automation argument makes a case for UBI today, if you understand it properly. They'll talk about, oh, well, we're replacing jobs with machines, and then someday there aren't going to be any jobs, and so we're gonna all going to need a basic income, or we're not, we're not going to be able to survive. And, well, that gets, some people are really excited by that, and that's gotten a lot of people into the movement. But as many people as it excites, it also puts off people for a lot of reasons. One, people think it's implausible. I don't necessarily think it's implausible. It used to be more technology always meant more jobs for horses. Then one day, more jobs meant more technology meant no jobs for horses, except for handsome cabs and and uh, horse racing um, and playthings. Uh, but uh, but so that same thing could happen to a lot of human labor. Um, so that is, it could happen. But then you got to get bogged down in this argument that it could happen. Uh, well, maybe it'll happen. Well, but then you give. The, someone who is skeptical about it, you give them an ace in the hole. If you say, oh, it's because we're give, eventually we're gonna, there's not going to be a job. So, well, let's wait until there's no jobs, and then we'll do it. But we should be angry now about what's going on with automation. Because what we've done is what welfare system we had, which was very judgmental and, and harsh, even at its height in the United States in the 1960s, what we've had has been gutted. The minimum wage is what a quarter of what it was at its at its height in real in in real um, dollar terms. Um, uh, aid to families with dependent children has been gutted and given work requirements. Um, unemployment insurance is not kept pace with inflation, and so on and so forth. We've gutted all these protections for the for the lower class. And what does that do? That puts the middle class in a worse bargaining position. So the middle class is can't say, well, yeah, well, it's not so easy for me to take unemployment insurance and live and not take this job. I got to take this job. We have all shared in the activity that's created in the automation that's created the, the doubling 
of our economy that we've had since the late 1970s. Our economy has doubled. And the people who've, who've most of the people who helped to cause this doubling and doing any kind of work between then and now have not shared in it almost all of the benefits of that doubling has gone to the top one or two percent. They're the only people who in real terms are wealthier now than they were later. I mean, maybe one or two percent, the middle class is better off, but that's not their share of a doubling of our economy. People should be angry about what's happened with automation in the last in the last 40 years. But also another thing that automation does is whenever it replaces labor, even even if it when, even if ends up there end up being more jobs, is it takes your job away and it creates a new job that you might not be qualified for. And it creates a churning and a painful churning in the well in, in the labor market, which makes which depresses wages because the more people there are losing their jobs, the less you have to pay for new jobs. So we're getting lower wages now and more work uncertainty now because of automation and growth and how we treat it with policy over the last 40 or 50 years. People should be angry about that now, and that's a reason to introduce basic income right now. We're not going to judge you when there's when you lose your job. We're not going to judge you. There's a basic income waiting for you if you have to leave your job because it's a bad job or you lose it because it was automated away. For whatever reason, that basic income is waiting for you. That's what we need now for the problems that we have in the system now, and that's going to help everyone from the lowest of the low right up until way above the median wages, well into the middle class. It's going to give all of those people better bargaining bargaining power to get a share of that growth that we've all helped work to create. Well, thanks very much. That's a great note, I think, on which to end uh, a sort of stirring argument for why we should be moving towards a universal basic income now, not 10 years in the future, 20 years in the future, but now. So I want to thank Carl Viterquist of Georgetown University Cutter for sharing his insights about universal basic income around the world. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Christo Voinov for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.